Thank you, Pastor David. I want to tell you about a young lady, Cindy. Cindy was a foreign exchange student from China oh, about 15 years ago. And she was attending university uh, in Iowa, at the University of Iowa. But she came to visit uh, Colorado over Christmas. So Cindy stayed at my parents' house for the two weeks of her Christmas vacation. And she'd come to know Jesus as her savior earlier uh, in October or so. And as Cindy stayed at my parents' house, she and my mom became very close. And we did all sorts of things together. We you know, went skiing, we went sledding, we celebrated Christmas together. Uh, a whole lot of events where Cindy got to participate as part of our family. But what I distinctly remember the most was the day that Cindy was to drive back to Iowa. And I remember watching as the tears were flowing and Cindy and my mom embraced. And I heard Cindy say, whether in this life or the next, I'll see you again. That is what Christmas is all about. That's actually what Christmas is about, is the end game of our Savior. We serve a Savior who gives us the promise, whether here or later, we will be together in the kingdom that Christ has established. We need to live with our eternal destiny in mind so that we can consistently and confidently place our trust in the eternal. We're going to start Christmas by looking at the end. The book of Revelation is notoriously hard to interpret. But not everything in the book is hard. In fact, there are some aspects of Revelation that are just plain simple. So today we're going to take a stab at some low-hanging fruit. If you want to start turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, that's where we will go today. Revelation chapter 20 concluded with judgment, a message of judgment. Judgment on the beast, judgment on Satan, judgment on those who are spiritually dead. And in those cases, the judgment is really pretty simple. Eternity in the lake of fire. But the question that remains is, what about those who are deemed righteous through Jesus? What about those who have accepted that Jesus died on the cross and paid for their sins? What is the fate of such individuals? And that's actually what Revelation chapter 21 is about. What is the fate of those who trust that Jesus died on the cross, paying for their sins, and have put their complete faith in Christ. That's the question that remains. And that's the question where we're going to start today. Because Christmas is all about our Savior. And we know how the story ends. So we will dig in to Revelation chapter 21. Let's read Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or cry or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. If I were to summarize verses 1 through 8 in one word, the word would be together. Together is what this is about. What Jesus is doing, what began in a manger, is a kingdom where Jesus' people are together. So the first thing I want to point out is that those who have a personal relationship with Jesus— are destined for an incredible, eternal dwelling. Those who have a personal relationship, this means that you have accepted that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you are relying solely on Jesus' death as payment for your sins. Those who have that type of a personal relationship with Jesus are destined for an incredible, eternal dwelling. Verses 1 and 2 tell us all about this dwelling. It starts with a new heaven and a new earth. The new heaven and the new earth are reminders that sin is defeated. And the burden of sin is only temporary. Do you know what the biggest impediment to your relationships is in your life? Sin. Think about it. When was the last time that you had a relational conflict that didn't involve sin? Somewhere. Sin is the biggest problem we face. It's the biggest problem in our personal lives, and it's the biggest problem in our relational lives. In fact, it's the problem that separates us from God. Colossians 1.21 tells us that once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. It gets in the way of our relationship with each other. Sin, though, has been defeated, and that burden of sin is only temporary. Revelation 21 verse 1 tells us there's a radical solution to this radical sin problem. A new heaven and a new earth. I should define terms real quickly here. We know what the earth is. Heaven in the Bible, there are three heavens used in the Bible. There's the atmosphere, what we would consider to be our atmosphere. There is space, the the dwelling of the planets, and then there is God's dwelling. Here in Revelation 21, when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, it's speaking of the physical earth that we reside on, the atmosphere, and then probably the space encompassing the rest of creation. It's not necessarily God's dwelling. God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Why? Because sin has tainted this earth. Everywhere you go, 
you are dealing with the consequences of sin. We are rapidly approaching a time where God makes this new. I personally can't fathom what this will be like. But the passage tells us a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I don't want to dig too deep in, but I also do want to dig a little bit in. John writes, they had passed away. The the word there is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean that it's completely destroyed. It could mean that it's created new. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, actually describes for us just a little bit of what this is like. So I'm going to read from you, read from the Bible for you. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, just briefly here, says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's how Peter describes the passing away of the current heaven and earth. And why do I read that to you? Because you all know that I like to nerd out on things sometimes. Maybe more than sometimes. Okay? But... Here's my, my theory on what God is actually going to do, because I like throwing out theories. Within an atom, the atomic structure, the building blocks of our universe, we have quarks. Quarks come together to form protons and neutrons. All right, here's your physics lesson. Protons are positively charged. Neutrons are negatively charged. Think about if you take a magnet and another magnet and you try to push them together... They don't go together well. Well, that's actually what's going on inside the nucleus of an atom. Gravity is not strong enough to overcome that force, and so we have a made-up force in physics called the strong nuclear force. The strong nuclear force is what holds together an atom. We don't really understand it. That's what quantum physics seeks to understand a little bit of. We don't fully understand it at all, but... If the strong nuclear force went away, every atom in the universe would immediately go nuclear on us, like a nuclear bomb. That would be the result of that. So, let me read to you one more time from 1 Peter 3. Just there. My theory, I think God's going to let go. Boom. New heaven, new earth, created from the very basic building blocks of the universe again. God is in the process He is preparing for the day when he solves our sin problem at the most fundamental level and makes a new heaven and a new earth. The new city, Jerusalem, mentioned in the text. The new city, Jerusalem, is a reminder that God is our eternal provider. God places a city for us to dwell in on this new heaven and this new earth. Why? Because we were made to inhabit a physical body, to inhabit a physical place. That's how God made us. God made Adam in the garden. He placed Adam in the garden. We were made to exist as physical beings, to work, to serve. God reminds us with the city of Jerusalem 
that he will continue to provide for our needs into eternity. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. I have no interest in sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That doesn't sound fun to me at all. Actually, my biggest, I would say, challenge in my faith is this idea of eternity. I don't know how I'm not going to get bored. I just, that's my biggest challenge. What I have to do is trust that the God who's providing me a dwelling is going to provide me things to keep my mind busy for eternity. But God is working to rebuild and his kingdom is coming. So let me give you an action step. This Christmas, as you celebrate Christmas, as you think of Christ's coming, remind yourself that the present is only temporary and all will be made new. We celebrate Christ's coming as a reminder that the present world is only temporary. All will be made new. Let's look a little bit more at what that newness is and how that world that Christ makes new is going to function and how we will live within that. That comes in verses 3 and 4. The reminder in verses 3 and 4 is that those who have a personal relationship with Jesus are destined for the ultimate reunion together. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus are destined for the ultimate reunion together. That's what's going on in verses 3 and 4. We have a loud voice from the throne saying, look. Now, when the Bible tells you to look at something, I recommend you do it. That's a pretty strong statement there. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Your choices reflect your priorities. That's kind of an obvious statement, but it's worth stating. The choices you make will reflect the priorities. For example, I want to eat healthy, and when I go into a restaurant, I never consider the salad. My, my priority clearly is not to eat healthy. I can say I want to eat healthy, but my choices will reflect my priorities. God's choices reflect his priorities. And the text says, look. God's dwelling is now with man. God will make it clear in eternity that we are his priority. How? By placing his very dwelling with us. I want you to think about that for a second. People like to choose where they live. They don't like to be assigned a place to live. You make choices on where you live. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden. They didn't get to choose, but God came and visited them. It talks about God walking in the garden with them. In eternity, the text that John wrote to us says God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This blows my mind. The God of the universe, who Solomon describes as the heavens cannot contain him, chooses to live with the creation. 
Think about that for a second. That is the love of our God. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Christ coming to be among us. Emmanuel, God with us. But it's even more than that that we're celebrating. Because yes, Christ came to be with us. And ultimately, God himself will make his dwelling with us. Beyond that, God himself will continue to be the catalyst that brings us together. Have you taken a second to look around at the people in the room today? I love to look around at the people in the room during the worship service and think about all the people that God has brought together. Some are related by blood. Some are related by choice. Together in this room today, God will continue to bring us together in eternity. The relationships that we form will be centered, just says, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The word people here. In the Hebrew Old Testament, God often talks about Israel being his people. And in the Old Testament... Whenever the word Israel is God's people or it talks about God's people, it's always singular. Israel is God's people. Something really interesting happens here that John has done. The word people is plural here in John. It would be better for us to translate it as, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people's. That's a little bit weird. We don't say that word. But that's actually what the text is, is all these peoples, these peoples that aren't similar to each other, that maybe speak different languages, that maybe have different interests, that have different hobbies, that have different family lines, are brought together under God, catalyzed into relationship through their Savior. We do not replace Israel, rather we get to join with Israel as being part of God's peoples. God has brought us together and he will continue to bring us together into eternity. And then, not only does he bring us together, but he writes all that is wrong. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This verse, the way it's written, is a very tender, intimate verse meant to convey a great deal of compassion as God shows us his love in writing all that is wrong. As I was thinking through this verse, I started thinking, how much of my life, how much of my time is spent dealing with consequences of sin? 
So, it's a little cold for gardening right now, but some of you garden. The weeds in your garden are a consequence of sin. Some of us are getting older and have things like broken bones and things like that. That's a consequence of sin. But what about even smaller things? How much of your time is spent dealing with a consequence of sin? Oftentimes when we think about God righting all of the wrongs, we think of the big ones, right? Murder, theft. But what about all the little issues that we have to deal with? God is going to right all that's wrong. He wipes every tear from their eyes. So, let's turn it into an action step. This Christmas, I want you to celebrate together, find people to celebrate with, join with people in celebrating Christmas in anticipation of truly being together. Recognizing that one day you will be together and sin will not be present. There won't be things like jealousy. There won't be things like anger. There won't be wrongs to right. This Christmas, let's celebrate together in anticipation of truly being together. Finally, in verses 5 through 8, I want to remind you that those who have a personal relationship with Jesus are destined to be part of his eternal kingdom. The promise of King Jesus is a promise to redeem. Jesus came to redeem. What's your favorite characteristic or character trait of God? Is it his holiness? He is set apart, unique. Maybe his omnipotence, the power that God exercises. For a long time, I was fascinated by God's omniscience, the idea that God knows everything. That fascinated me. But lately, I can't get over the fact that God is Redeemer. God takes that which is broken, me, everybody else, and makes it better. Think about that for just a second. God created Adam and Eve. He created them sinless, placed them in the garden, but they had a capacity for sin. And they fell. What God is doing now is he is in the process which will culminate with me being unable to sin. God redeems. He takes that which is broken, my sinful life, and he makes it better than it ever could have been. He responds, John, or John writes, quoting from God, Behold, I make all things new. Or the way the NIV translates it, I am making everything 
new. God's in the process of making it new. Job wrote about this. In Job 19, 25 through 27, I'll just quote this for you. It says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. That God would redeem him. We must recognize and celebrate that God is the Redeemer. We should celebrate that the promise of King Jesus is a promise of eternal life. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. The Greek letter Alpha is the first letter in the alphabet. Omega is the last letter in their alphabet. But just in case you didn't know that, it's okay because John actually tells us what it means. The beginning and the end. Jesus is eternal. And he promises us eternal life. The promise that King Jesus has made to you is a simple promise. That if you have accepted that Jesus died on the cross, paying the payment for your sins, and you are relying solely on that payment for your sins, then you are guaranteed eternal life with Jesus in his kingdom. That's the promise of King Jesus. But it's more than just eternal life. The promise of King Jesus is a promise to be identified with God. I'm going to talk about verse 7 in just a second. I almost didn't even mention verse 8. When I was writing my notes the first time, I didn't even include verse 8 because I was like, oh, that's like downer. But we have to understand that God is a God of justice. He will punish sin. He does punish those who reject him. But verse 7 is the verse for us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior. Those who are victorious. Not that you have won the victory, but Christ has already secured the victory for you. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. I will be their God. Think about that for a second. That is a statement where God is saying, I choose to be your God. It is a statement of adoption. It is a statement that I can't fathom that God would choose to be my God. I had a seminary professor that used to say, my goal in life is that God will be proud to call me his. And I think that's actually what this text is saying. God will be proud of us. Why? Not because of anything we've done, but because of the righteousness of King Jesus. So what should we do? Well, Christmas is coming. 
So this Christmas, share the promise of King Jesus. He has promised us an eternal kingdom. Share that. Our memory verse for the month is Matthew 1.23. And I'd like you to say this with me. Matthew 1.23. It's going to come up on the screen here in just a second. Recite this with me. Matthew 1.23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 23. My hope for you is that this verse this month has new meaning as you think about the idea that God has chosen us, not just now, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, the God of the universe, have chosen us. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything we deserve. But simply because you love us. I pray that this Christmas, as we look forward to eternity, that we would remember that you want to be with us. And that we would let you in. That we would share with others your love, your desire to be with them. May we give you the glory because you alone are worthy. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.